Chapter Eight of A Silent Witness by R. Austin Freeman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. It's an ill wind. London is a wonderful place. From the urban greyness of Jacob Street to the borders of Hampstead Heath was, even in those days of the slow horse tram, but a matter of minutes. A good many minutes, perhaps, but still considerably under an hour. Yet, in that brief and leisurely journey, one exchanged the grim sordidness of a most unlovely street for the solitude and sweet rusticity of open and charming country. A day or two after my second adventure in the mineral waterworks, I was leaning on the parapet of the viaduct, the handsome red-brick viaduct with which some builder, unknown to me, had spanned the pond beyond the upper heath, apparently with purely decorative motive, and in a spirit of sheer philanthropy, for no road seemed to lead anywhere in particular over it, and there was no reason why any wayfarer should wish to cross the pond rather than walk round it. Indeed, in those days it was covered by a turfy expanse seldom trodden by any feet but those of the sheep that grazed in the meadows bordering the pond. I leaned on the parapet, smoking my pipe with deep contentment and looking down into the placid water. Flags and rushes grew at its borders, Water-lilies spread their flat leaves on its surface, and a small party of urchins angled from the margin, with the keen joy of the juvenile sportsman who suspects that his proceedings are unlawful. I had lounged on the parapet for several minutes when I became aware of a man approaching along the indistinct track that crossed the viaduct, and, as he drew near, I recognized him as the keeper whom I had met in Kenwood on the morning after my discovery of the body in Millfield Lane. I would have let him pass with a smile of recognition, but he had no intention of passing. Touching his hat politely, he halted, and, having wished me good morning, remarked, "'You didn't tell me, sir, what it was you were looking for that morning when I met you in the wood.' "'No,' I replied. "'But apparently someone else has.' "'Well, sir, you see,' he said, the sergeant came up the next day with a plain-clothes man to have a look round, and, as the sergeant is an old acquaintance of mine, he gave me the tip as to what they were after. I'm sorry, sir, you didn't tell me what you were looking for. Why? I asked. Well, he replied, we might have found something if we had looked while the tracks were fresh. Unfortunately, there was a gale in the night that fetched down a lot of leaves and blew up those that had already fallen, so that any footmarks would have got hidden before the sergeant came. "'What did the police officers seem to think about it?' I asked. "'Why, to speak the truth,' the keeper replied, "'they seemed to think it was all bogey.' "'Do you mean to say,' I asked, "'that they thought I had invented the whole story?' "'Oh, no, sir,' he replied, "'not that. "'They believed you had seen a man lying in the lane, "'but they didn't believe that he was a dead man, "'and they thought your imagination had misled you about the tracks.' "'Then I suppose they didn't find anything?' said I. No, they didn't, and I haven't been able to find anything myself, though I've had a good look round. And then, after a brief pause, I wonder, he said, if you would care to come up to the wood and have a look at the place yourself. I considered for a moment. I had nothing to do, for I was taking a day off, and the man's proposal sounded rather attractive. Finally, I accepted his offer, and we turned back together towards the wood. Hampstead, the Hampstead of those days, was singularly rustic and remote. But, within the wood, it was incredible that the town of London 
actually lay within the sound of a church bell or the flight of a bullet. Along the shady paths, carpeted with moss and silvery lichen, overshadowed by the boughs of noble beeches, or in leafy hollows with the humus of centuries under our feet, and the whispering silence of the woodland all around, we might have been treading the glades of some primeval forest. Nor was the effect of this strange remoteness less, when presently, emerging from the thicker portion of the wood, we came upon a moss-grown, half-ruinous boathouse on the sedgy margin of a lake, in which was drawn up a rustic-looking and evidently little-used punt. "'It's wonderful quiet about here, sir,' the keeper remarked, as a water-hen stole out from behind a clump of high rushes and scrambled over the leaves of the water-lilies. "'And presumably,' I remarked, "'it's quieter still at night.' "'You're right, sir,' the keeper replied. "'If that man had got as far as this, he'd have had mighty little trouble in putting the body where no one was ever likely to look for it.' "'I suppose,' said I, "'that you had a good look at the edges of the lake.' "'Yes,' he answered. "'I went right round it, and so did the police, for that matter, and we had a good look at the punt, too. But, all the same, it wouldn't surprise me if, one fine day, that body came floating up among the lilies. Always supposing, that is,' he added, "'that there really was a body.' "'How far is it?' I asked. "'From the lake to the place where you met me that morning?' "'It's only a matter of two or three minutes,' he answered. We may as well walk that way, and you can see for yourself. Accordingly, we set forth together, and coming presently upon one of the moss-grown paths, followed it past a large summer-house, until we came in sight of the beach beyond which I had encountered him while I was searching for the tracks. As we went, he plied me with questions as to what I had seen on the night in the lane, and I made no scruple of telling him all that I had told the police, seeing that they, on their side, had made no secret of the matter. Of course, it was idle after this long period, for it was now more than seven weeks since I had seen the body, to attempt anything in the nature of a search. It certainly did look as if the man who had stolen into that wood that night had been bound for the solitary lake. The punt, I had noticed, was only secured with a rope, so that the murderer, for such I assumed he must have been, could easily have carried his dreadful burden out into the middle, and there sunk it with weights, and so hidden it for ever. It was a quick, simple, and easy method of hiding the traces of his crime, and, if the police had not thought it worth while to search the water with drags, there was no reason why the buried secret should not remain buried for all time. After we had walked for some time about the pleasant, shady wood, less shady now that the yellowing leaves were beginning to fall with the passing of autumn, the keeper conducted me to the exit by which I had left on the previous occasion. As I was passing out of the wicket, my eye fell once more on the cottage which I had then noticed, and, recalling the remark that my fair acquaintance had let fall concerning the artist to whom the derelict knife was supposed to belong, I said, "'You mentioned, I think, that that house was let to an artist.' "'It was,' he replied. "'But it's empty now. The artist has gone away.' "'It must be a pleasant little house to live in,' I said, "'at any rate in summer.' "'Yes,' he replied. "'A country house within an hour's walk with the Bank of England. "'Would you like to have a look at it, sir? "'I've got the keys.' "'Now, I certainly had no intention of offering myself as a tenant, "'but, yet, to an idle man, "'there is a certain attractiveness in an empty house of an eligible kind, 
a certain interest in roaming through the rooms and letting one's fancy furnish them with one's own household goods. I accepted the man's invitation, and, opening the wide gate that admitted to the garden from a by-road, we walked up to the door of the house. "'It's quite a nice little place,' the keeper remarked. "'There isn't much garden, you see, but then you've got the heath all round, and there's a small stable and coach-house if you should be wanting to go into town.' "'Did the last tenant keep any kind of carriage?' I asked. "'I don't think so,' said the keeper. "'But I fancy he used to hire a little cart sometimes when he had things to bring in from town. But I don't know very much about him or his habits.' We walked through the empty rooms together, looking out of the windows and commenting on the pleasant prospects that all of them commanded, and talking about the man who had last lived in the house. "'He was a queer sort of fellow,' said the keeper. He and his wife seem to have lived here all alone without any servant, and they seem often to have left the house to itself for a day or two at a time. But he could paint. I have stopped and had a look when he has been at work, and it was wonderful to see how he knocked off those pictures. He didn't seem to use brushes, but he had a lot of knives, like little trowels, and he used to shovel the paint on with them, and he always wore gloves when he was painting.' didn't like to get the paint on his hands, I suppose. "'It sounds as if it would be very awkward,' I said. "'Just what I should have thought,' the keeper agreed. "'But he didn't seem to find it so. "'This seems to be the place that he worked in.' Apparently the keeper was right. The room which we had now entered was evidently the late studio, and did not appear to have been cleaned up since the tenant left.' The floor was littered with scraps of paper on which a palette-knife had been cleaned, with empty paint-tubes and one or two broken and worn-out brushes, and, in a packing-case, which seemed to have served as a receptacle for rubbish, were one or two canvases that had been torn from their stretchers and thrown away. I picked them out and glanced at them with some interest, remembering what my fair friend had said. For the most part they were mere experiments or failures, deliberately defaced with strokes or daubs of paint, but one of them was a quite spirited and attractive sketch, rough and unfinished, but skilfully executed and undefaced. I stretched out the crumpled canvas and looked at it with considerable interest, for it represented Millfield Lane, and showed the large elms and the posts and the high fence under which I had sheltered in the rain. In fact, it appeared to have been taken from the exact spot on which the body had been lying, from which I had made my own drawing. Not that there was anything in the latter coincidence, for it was the only sketchable spot in the lane. "'It's really quite a nice sketch,' I said. "'It seems a pity to leave it here among the rubbish.' "'It does, sir,' the keeper agreed. "'If you like it, you'd better roll it up and put it in your pocket. You won't be robbing anyone.' As it seemed that I was but rescuing it from a rubbish heap, I ventured to follow the keeper's advice, and, rolling the canvas up, carefully stowed it in my pocket, and shortly after, as I had now seen all that there was to see, which was mighty little, we left the house, and, at the gate, the keeper took leave of me with a touch of his hat. I made my way slowly back towards my lodgings by way of the Spaniards' Road and Hampstead Lane, turning over in my mind as I went the speculations suggested by my visit to the wood. Of the existence of the lake I had not been previously aware— now that I had seen it, I felt very little doubt that it was known to the mysterious murderer, for such I felt convinced he was, who must have been lurking in the lane that night when I was sheltering under the lee of the fence. 
the route that he had then taken appeared to be the direct route to the lake. That he was carrying the body I had no doubt whatever, and seeing that he had carried it so far, it appeared probable that he had some definite hiding-place in view. And what hiding-place could be so suitable as this remote piece of still water? No digging, no troublesome and dangerous preparation would be necessary. There was the punt in readiness to bear him to the deep water in the middle. A silent, easily handled conveyance. A few stones, or some heavy object from the boathouse, would be all that was needful, and in a moment he would be rid forever of the dreadful witness of his crime. Thus reflecting, not without dissatisfaction at the passive part that I had played in this sinister affair, I passed through the turnstile or kissing-gate at the entrance to Millfield Lane. Almost certainly the murderer or the victim, or both, had passed through that very gate on the night of the tragedy. The thought came to me with added solemnity, with the recollection of the silent wood and the dark still water fresh in my mind, and caused me unconsciously to tread more softly and walk more sedately than usual. The lane was little frequented at any time, and now, at midday, was almost as deserted as at midnight. Very remote it seemed, too, and very quiet, with a silence that recalled the hush of the wood, and yet the silence was not quite unbroken. From somewhere ahead, from one of the many windings of the tortuous lane, came the sound of hurried footsteps. I stopped to listen. There were two persons, one treading lightly, the other more heavily, apparently a man and a woman, and both were running, running fast. There was nothing remarkable in this, perhaps, but yet the sound smote on my ear with a certain note of alarm that made me quicken my pace and listen yet more intently. And suddenly there came another sound, a muffled, whimpering cry like that of a frightened woman. Instantly I gave an answering shout and sprang forward at a swift run. I had turned one of the numerous corners and was racing down a straight stretch of the lane when a woman darted round the corner ahead and ran towards me, holding out her hands. I recognized her at a glance, though now she was dishevelled, pale, wild-eyed, breathless, and nearly frantic with terror, and rage against her assailant spurred me on to greater speed. But when I would have passed her to give chase to the wretch, she clutched my arm frantically with both hands and detained me. "'Let me go and catch the scoundrel!' I exclaimed, but she only clung the tighter. "'No!' she panted. "'Don't leave me! I'm terrified! Don't go away!' I ground my teeth. Even as we stood, I could hear the ruffian's footsteps receding as rapidly as they had advanced. In a few moments he would be beyond pursuit. "'Do let me go and stop that villain!' I implored. "'You're quite safe now, and you can follow me and keep me in sight.' But she shook her head passionately, and still clutching my sleeve with one hand, pressed the other to her heart. "'No! No! No!' she gasped, with a catch in her voice that was almost a sob. "'I can't be alone. I'm frightened. Oh, please don't go away from me.' What could I do? The poor girl was evidently beside herself with terror, and exhausted by her frantic flight. It would have been cruel to leave her in that state. But all the same it was infuriating. I had no idea what the man had done to terrify her in this way. But that was of no consequence.' The natural impulse of a healthy young man when he learns that a woman has been ill-used is to hammer the offender effectively in the first place, and then to inquire into the affair. That was what I wanted to do. 
but it was not to be. "'Well,' I said, by way of compromise, "'let us walk back together. Perhaps we may be able to find out which way the man went.' To this she agreed. I drew her arm through mine, for she was still trembling, and looked faint and weak, and we began to retrace her steps towards Highgate. Of course the man was nowhere to be seen, and by the time that we had returned to the sharp corner where I had found the body of the priest, the man was not only out of sight, but his footsteps were no longer audible. Still, we went on for some distance in the hopes of meeting someone who could tell us which way the miscreant had gone, but we met nobody. Only, some distance past the posts, we came in sight of a sketching-box and a camp-stool, lying by the side of the path. "'Surely those are your things,' I said. "'Yes,' she answered. "'I had forgotten all about them. I dropped them when I began to run.' I picked up the box and the stool, and debated with myself whether it was worth while to go on any farther. From where we stood, nothing was to be seen, for the lane was still enclosed on both sides by a seven-foot fence of oak boards. But the chance of overtaking the fugitive was not to be considered. By this time he was probably out of the lane, on the heath or in the surrounding meadows. And meanwhile my companion, though calmer and less breathless, looked very pale and shaken. "'I don't know that it's any use,' I said, "'to tire you by going any farther. The man is evidently gone.' She seemed relieved at my decision and it then occurred to me to suggest that she should sit down a while on the bank under the high fence to recover herself, and to this, too, she assented gladly. "'If it wouldn't distress you,' I said, "'would you mind telling me what had happened?' She pondered for a few seconds, and then answered, "'It doesn't sound much in the telling, and I expect you'll think me very silly to be so much upset.' "'I'm sure I shan't,' I said with perfect confidence in the correctness of my statement. "'Well,' she said, "'what happened was this, as nearly as I can remember. I was coming up the path from the ponds, and I had to pass a man who was leaning against the fence by the stile. As I came near to him, he looked at me at first, in quite an ordinary way, and then he suddenly began to stare in a most singular and disturbing fashion.' not at me so much as at this little crucifix which i wear hung from my neck as i passed through the turnstile he spoke to me would you mind letting me look at that crucifix he asked it was a most astonishing piece of impertinence and i was so taken aback that i hardly had the presence of mind to refuse however i did and very decidedly too then he came up to me and in a most threatening and alarming manner said "'You found that crucifix. You picked it up somewhere near here. It's mine, and I'll ask you to let me have it, if you please.' "'Now, this was perfectly untrue. The crucifix was given to me by my father when I was quite a little child, and I've worn it ever since I have been grown up. Ever since he died, in fact, six years ago. I told the man this, but he made no pretense of believing me, and was evidently about to renew his demand when two labourers appeared.' coming down the lane. I thought this a good opportunity to escape, and walked away quickly up the lane. It was very silly of me. I ought to have gone the other way. "'Of course you ought,' I agreed. "'You ought to have got out into a public road at once.' "'Yes, I see that now,' she said. "'It was very foolish of me. However, 
I walked on pretty quickly, for there was something in the man's face that had frightened me, and I was anxious to get home. I looked back from time to time, and, when I saw no sign of the man, I began to recover myself. But just as I had got to the most solitary part of the lane, just about where we are now, shut in by these high fences, I heard quick footsteps behind me. I looked back and saw the man coming after me. Then I suppose I got in a sudden panic, for I dropped my sketching things and began to run. But as soon as I began to run, the man broke into a run too. I raced for my life, and when I heard the man gaining on me, I suppose I must have called out. Then I heard your shout from the upper part of the lane, and ran on faster than ever to gain your protection. That's all, and I suppose you think that I've been making a great fuss about nothing. I don't think anything of the kind, I said, and neither would our absent friend, if I could get hold of him. By the way, what sort of person was he? A tramp? Oh, no, quite a respectable-looking person. In fact, he would have passed for a gentleman. Can you give any sort of description of him? Not that verbal descriptions are of much use, except in the case of a hunchback or a Chinaman or some other easily identifiable creature. No, they're not, she agreed, and I don't think that I can tell you much about this man, excepting that he was clean-shaved, of medium height, quite well-dressed, and wore a round head and slate-coloured suede gloves. I'm afraid we shan't get hold of him from that description, I said. The only thing that you can do is to avoid solitary places for the present, and not to come through this lane again alone. Yes, she said. I suppose I must, but it's very unfortunate. One cannot always take a companion when one goes sketching, even if it were desirable, which it is not. As to the desirability, in the case of a good-looking girl, of wandering about alone in solitary places, I had my own opinions, and very definite opinions they were, but I kept them to myself, and so we sat silent for a while. She was still pale and agitated, and perhaps her recital of her misadventure had not been wholly beneficial. At the moment that this idea occurred to me, a crackling in my breast-pocket reminded me of the forgotten canvas, and I bethought me that perhaps a change of subject might divert her mind from her very disagreeable experience. Accordingly, I drew the canvas out of my pocket, and, unrolling it, asked her what she thought of the sketch. In a moment she became quite animated. "'Why!' she exclaimed. "'This looks exactly like the work of that artist who was working on the heath a little while ago.' "'It is his,' I replied, considerably impressed and rather astonished at her instantaneous recognition. "'But I didn't know you were so familiar with his work.' "'I'm not very familiar with it,' she replied. "'But, as I told you, I sometimes managed to steal a glance or two when I passed him. You see, his technique is so peculiar that it's easily recognized, and it interested me very much. I should have liked to stop and watch him and get a lesson. "'It is rather peculiar work,' I said, looking at the canvas with new interest. "'Very solid, and yet very smooth.' "'Yes. It is typical knife-work, almost untouched with a brush. That was what interested me. The knife is a dangerous tool for a comparative tyro like myself, but yet one would like to learn how to use it. Did he give you this sketch? I smiled guiltily. The truth is, I admitted, 
I stole it. How dreadful of you, she said. I suppose that you could not be bribed to steal another. I would steal it for nothing if you asked me, I answered, and meanwhile you had better take possession of this one. It will be of more use to you than to me. She shook her head. No, I won't do that, she said, though it is most kind of you. You paint, I think, don't you? I am only the merest amateur, I replied. I annexed the sketch for the sake of the subject. I have rather an affection for this lane. So had I, said she, until today. Now I hate it. But might I ask how you managed your theft? I told her about the empty cottage and the rejected canvases in the rubbish box. I'm afraid none of the others would be of any use to you, because he had drawn a brushful of paint across each of them. Oh, that wouldn't matter, she said. The brush strokes would be on dry paint and could easily be scraped off. Besides, it is not the subject but the technique that interests me. Then I will get into the cottage somehow and purloin the remaining canvases for you. Oh, but I mustn't give you all this trouble, she protested. It won't be any trouble, I said. I shall quite enjoy a deliberate and determined robbery. But where shall I send the spoil? She produced her card-case, and, selecting a card, handed it to me, with a smile. It seems to me, she said, that I am inciting you to robbery and acting as a receiver of stolen goods. But I suppose there is no harm in it though I feel that I ought not to give you all this trouble. I made the usual polite rejoinder as I took from her the little magical slip of pasteboard that, in a moment, transformed her from a stranger to an acquaintance, and gave her a local habitation and a name. Before bestowing it in my pocket-book, I glanced at the neat copper-plate and read the inscription. Miss Sylvia Vine, The Hawthorns, North End. The effect of our conversation had answered my expectations, her agitation had passed off, the colour had come back to her cheeks, and, in fact, she seemed quite recovered. Apparently she thought so herself, for she rose, saying that she now felt well enough to walk home, and held out her hand for the colour-box and stool. "'I think,' said I, "'that if you won't consider me intrusive, I should like to see you safely out onto an inhabited road at least.' "'I shall accept your escort gratefully,' she replied, as far as the end of the lane, or farther, if it's not taking you too much out of your way. Needless to say, I would gladly have escorted so agreeable and winsome a protégé from John O'Groats to Land's End, and found it not out of my way at all, and when she passed out of the gate into Hampstead Lane, I clung tenaciously to the box and stool, and turned towards the Spaniards as though no such thing as dismissal had ever been contemplated. In fact, with the reasonable excuse of carrying the impedimenta, I maintained my place by her side in the absence of a definite congé. And so we walked together, talking quite easily, principally about pictures and painting, until, in the pleasant little hamlet, she halted by a garden gate, and, taking her possessions from me, held out a friendly hand. "'Good-bye,' she said. "'I can't thank you enough for all your help and kindness. I hope I have not been very troublesome to you.' I assured her that she had been most amenable, and, when I had once more cautioned her to avoid solitary places, we exchanged a cordial handshake and parted, she to enter the pleasant, rustic-looking house, and I to betake myself back to my lodgings, 
lightening the way with much agreeable and self-congratulatory reflection. End of chapter 8